You're listening to Cross Life, the college ministry of Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana. Our current series is Imago Day, a study of how the character of God impacts your daily life. My name's Tanner, and I get to lead and shepherd Cross Life with Andy Gerlach. And uh, we've been doing this for just over two years now, and we really enjoy it. My folks are here tonight for the first time, Dave and Susie Ripley. Kind of special to have them here as well. Say hi to them on your way out if you get a chance. You can clap for them. Yeah. (laughs) Did everybody get a sheet? Anyone not get a sheet? Okay, I may not have made enough copies. Okay. Let's get Colin one and some other guys one. What comes to mind when you think about the Trinity? What comes to mind? Let me ask you this. What comes to mind when you think about God? A.W. Tozer says this. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. We've been going through a series called Imago Dei, means image of God. Genesis 1.27, God created us in his image. In the image of God, he created us. Male and female, he created us. Here's the idea. He made us in his image, so what is he like? We need to know how, and then how do we reflect that image? That's the question. Tonight's Trinity. Are you ready? If someone were to ask you here tonight or outside on campus in the workplace, uh, wherever it is, hey, can you give me a brief description on the Trinity? Or, hey, can you tell me what the Trinity is? What would you tell them? Would you be able to tell them? What would come to mind as you thought about the Trinity? I wonder. I wonder. Well, we need God's help tonight to learn about this. We really need God's help, don't we? We always do. Let's ask him for help this evening. Lord, I want to throw myself fully on you and and ask that you would do a work tonight, that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures, that you would give us insight, discernment, wisdom into your word as we talk about you, as we talk about you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for the opportunity to do this. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the body gathered here in a warm place free from persecution. Lord, help us to not take these things for granted. Help us to worship you well tonight in singing, in prayer, in teaching, in fellowship. Help us to worship you well. Get glory for yourself tonight. Be glorified, Father. Get the worship that you deserve out of this group tonight. We ask in your son's name. Amen. Uh, Let's be honest. When we talk about the Trinity you get goosebumps a little bit, huh? And it's not because it's, it's reverence that you probably get goosebumps. Some of you get a little bit uncomfortable when you talk about the Trinity, right? If you were to try to describe the Trinity to somebody, it might make you pretty uncomfortable. I ask you this, are you ashamed of the Trinity? Are you ignorant of the Trinity? Are you passionate about the Trinity? What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you? What comes to mind when you think about God? Is it the Trinity? Is it the triune nature of God? I think it's often noble and uh, sounds humble in Christian circles to say, whoa, the Trinity, that's kind of past me. I don't get all that. I don't try to get all that. I just focus on uh, the fundamentals or the basics. Let me tell you, the Trinitarian nature of God is basic. It is fundamental. I won't say it's simple, but I want to be careful acting like we're noble if we just skip over or act like we don't need to understand or at least reach into the depths of the Trinity. That's a good thing, uh, this doctrine isn't verse-sized, isn't it? But let's be honest, we like our doctrines verse-sized. I want mine verse-sized, 
with a side of supportive scripture and a little bit of theology. That's how we like our doctrines, isn't it? But Trinity doesn't fit into a neat little package for us, does it? I want to suggest to you that that's a good thing. That there's verses that talk about the Trinity, but I want to suggest to you that the Trinity is Bible-sized. That as you read through the Bible, as you're faced with the truth of God's Word, the Trinity is undeniable. You can't get past it. That's a good thing. Often, I'll be honest, we'd rather go to pictures or analogies or I'd say the Trinity is exactly like this. I'm going to talk about analogies later, but really we just can't do that with the Trinity. The Trinity is, it's, uh, in fact, last time I taught, two weeks ago, remember what I taught on? God is incomprehensible. So all of God is incomprehensible, at least in, its, in his entirety. The, the doctrine of the Trinity is no different. There's a sense in which it's incomprehensible. But there is a sense in which he's revealed massive amounts of it to us. And tonight I want to suggest that we search, examine, and probe scriptures as a whole. And we can't help but come to the conclusion of the triune nature of God. Let me ask you a question. You ever read to a little kid? Have you, you ever had a little kid sit on your lap and you take him on your lap and Elliot come? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but you ever have a kid sit on your lap and you read a storybook to him? Brooke was doing this with a, a little girl she was babysitting with yesterday, and she said, "You know, when you get to that book and you realize that the book that you're reading with a little kid's about fifty pages and you're never going to get through it, and so you start to summarize. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And you flip through and." Even if there's two sentences on that page that can't stay with you, and so you just talk about the picture on that page, and then you go to the next page, and pretty soon they want to go up and do something else. So you're skimming through this book. Anybody ever done that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I want to suggest that all too often we do that with God's Word. We treat God's Word like a picture book, and we skim through it, and we skip over it, and you know what ends up happening? We end up knowing just about as much about it as that youngster did about what's in that picture book. I feel, and I, I'll say it this way, I fear that that's not altogether different for many people in the body. And we just see this as something that, uh, well, I better hurry up and get through this or else I'm going to be bored by the time I get to chapter two. Can I speak to you real honestly for a moment tonight? Kind of divulge it, just as sort of an introduction to what we're going to talk about tonight. I'm a why guy. I've told you that before. Why? Why are we studying what we're studying tonight? Something that's really been on my heart with you guys and, and the college body of Christ in general. Why are we talking about the Godhead? Why are we spending a night on the Trinity? Why Imago Dei? Why theology in general? Why do we talk about these things? Oftentimes people say to me, Tanner, I don't care. I just want to love God and love people. I got to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean when you say you want to love God and love people? What do you mean by that? Uh, Jesus loved people, didn't he? How did he love them? He taught them, he fed them, he healed them. He lived with them. He bled for them, he died for them. And he instructed them from the scriptures. I'll read to you a quote that's on your sheet. It's from the ESV Study Bible. It says this, Man would like to think that just being a good person and loving God without an emphasis on doctrine is preferable. 
But being a good person can mean radically different things depending on what someone thinks of or thinks good is or what constitutes a person. Loving God will look very different depending on one's conception of God or of love. The fundamental connections between belief and behavior, between love and knowledge, demand a rigorous pursuit of truth for those who want to love God and be godly. That's why when I heard a speaker a little bit back say, when people come in, I just want to love them. I don't want to do much, but I just want to let them be and love them. That's not love, at least not biblically speaking. I know what he means when he says that, but I want to suggest to you that we can't divorce love from doctrine. Think of it this way. uh, Oftentimes people say, I don't care for theology. I just want to fill in the blank. I just want to love God. I just want to do this. What you're really saying when you say that is, I don't really want to know about God. I just want to serve Him. Theology has root meaning. It means the study of God. Theology proper is the study of God the Father. The study of God. How would that work if I told my wife, Brooke, if I said, sweetheart, I don't really want to know what you like or how you are or how you feel or what you desire or what you like. I just want to love you and serve you. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It wouldn't make sense, would it? I would be doing things thinking that I was serving her that she maybe really disliked. Tanner, why'd you dump that bucket of cold water on my head? Well, sweetheart, you looked hot. I just thought maybe that's what you wanted me to do. That seems funny, but that's what some of us do with the Lord, isn't it? I just want to serve the Lord. And you go out and you do things that seem really noble and sound really good. But really, you don't know what the Lord says about himself or what he desires or what he's commanded you. I want to suggest that you can't divorce those two things. That's a superficial kind of love. I want you to go with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. Just as an introduction to what we're going to talk about tonight. I've got some ground to cover. So (laughs) buckle up. We're going to cover some ground. But I really want to get through this with you. Go to Hebrews 5. And look with me at verse, starting in verse 11. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but there's lots of suggestions and hypotheses. But what he's saying here is he's talking about spiritual immaturity. Okay? And he says this, concerning uh, him we have much to say. That's Melchizedek is referring to the verse before. But concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Verse 12, for by this time you ought to have been teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need, what? Milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's in Hebrews 5, 11 through, uh, even going through 6, 3. It teaches that deepening theological understanding equips you to be able to differentiate from good and evil. And it exhorts believers to mature in their knowledge of what God, who God is and what He says. Listen, you can't divorce these two things. You see that? Are you with me? It would be, how silly would it be if some of you came in tonight at 18, 19, 20, however old you are, 22 years old, and you came up and down the aisle drinking out of a bottle of milk, wearing a diaper, talking in gibberish. 
I tell you to get out of here or at least go in the cry room over there for a little while, right? But that's kind of the picture that Paul is giving us. Are you feasting on solid food or are you feasting on milk? Do you desire to grow in knowledge of God's word and in knowledge of him? Not just for the end of knowing more about him, but being conformed to him. Knowing what he demands of your life, what he desires, what he tells you to do. And I fear, here's my fear. I fear that all too many of us don't. I want to see you as one of your spiritual leaders. I want to see you grow and learn and look more like Christ. So don't stay immature. And as humbly as I can say this, tonight is going to be solid food. Okay? So don't just skip over this or don't just say, hey, this is too deep for me. I want want you to stretch your minds and open up your minds a little bit. It's been said this way, though we cannot fully comprehend it, we can work harder to apprehend it and apply it. Okay, though you can't fully understand, though what we're going to talk about tonight in, in a very real sense is incomprehensible, I want you to work hard to apprehend it, to apply it, to, to try to understand it. Okay? I want to see men and women of God. You know why I love college ministry so much? Is because, I'm going to be real frank with you, because so many people come in as boys, little boys, and they grow and they get on meat and they learn and they leave as men. And so many people come in as girls and they leave as godly young women. That's why I love so much this ministry is because it's such a transformational stage in your life. But ask yourself, how long have you been a Christian? And are you feasting on meat? Are you growing? Are you growing to look more like him? Okay, we, st- we can't stay on that all night. But as a preface to what we're going to talk about tonight, I-, I hope you want meat. I hope you want to grow. And if tonight seems like a classroom setting, uh, I-, I won't apologize because I want you to learn. Not just, again, not just for the, for the sake of learning, but for the sake of growing and being conformed. I, I talked to too many Christians on campus who've been Christians for four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and they're talking about Stuff that's just not in the Bible like it is, okay? So I want you to learn and grow. And I also want to cut you guys some slack, too. I know some of you are very new believers, and uh, this is all very new to you. But let's dive in tonight. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, the doctrine of the Trinity is the differentiating doctrine of the Christian faith. It's the differentiating doctrine. It's what sets, it's one of the things that sets Christianity, biblical, historical, Orthodox Christianity, apart from every other religion in the world. Okay, a right understanding of the Trinity. Here's the Trinity. Simply put, there is one God. Okay, we're going to cover each of these individually, but there is one God. One God. God is one in essence, okay? But God is three persons. Now, each person is fully God and co eternal and co equal with one another. And I love that. I've grown to love so much the doctrine of Trinity this week as I've studied it. It's perhaps the most clear area where unity and distinction can coexist without compromise. Furthermore, unity without uniformity and diversity without division. This is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. There is one God. There's one God and there's one what? God. There's three who there's three who's, three persons. One God, one essential essence, three persons. This isn't some abstract math we're talking about. Okay, and this isn't a contradiction. Contradiction would be to say that uh, 
A is A, no, A is B. We're not saying that. We're saying two different things. We're saying that God is one essence, but that he is three persons. Okay? So let's go through these points individually. There's one God, or God is one in essence. God has always been one. And it's important to understand the word uh, that comes from the Hebrew word refers to unity of more than one person. For example, in Genesis 2.24, calls the husband and wife one flesh. Okay, one flesh. It's talking about one, but there's multiple people involved. Deuteronomy 4.35 says this, The Lord is God, and there is no other besides Him. Deuteronomy 32.39, God says this, There is no God besides me. Psalm 86.10 says this, You alone are God. Turn to Isaiah with me. Go to the book of Isaiah. After Psalms, go to verse, excuse me, chapter 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Could this be any more clear? God says it so clearly. There is one God. There's always been God. Christianity at its very root is monotheistic. There is one God. Okay? 1 Timothy 1.17 says, The King of Ages, immortal, in, excuse me, immortal, invisible. God only wise? No, that's the song. That's what I was thinking too. Immortal, invisible, the only God. Okay, he's the only God. He always has been, always will be. First Timothy 2, 5 says there's one God. Uh, but there's, you say there's other gods that I've heard of. There's, uh, I've heard you warn us about them. I've heard you talk about them. What about them? Well, in John 17, 3, Jesus speaks of the only true God. Okay, there's one true and real God. Israel, and this isn't new, Israel always had people around them with many false gods. You read through the Old Testament, you see again and again, God is warning them, don't be conformed to the pagan gods. Don't look, look to the true God, look to the real God. Okay? Uh, folks, Israel, people thought Israel was arrogant back then, way back then, for saying that there's one God. In Acts 17, as Paul is walking into Athens, he sees that there's altars made to many different gods. And can I be honest with you again? My fear is tonight that many of you in here worship other gods. Okay, that you ascribe worth and power and, and majesty to other gods. You worship one that you create in your mind, or maybe it's a god by the first name school and the last name homework. Or maybe it's somebody named Jamie, or maybe it's somebody named David, or maybe it's weightlifting, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's music rehearsal, maybe it's football, maybe it's, I don't know what it is. Okay. If I were to be honest with you, there was a time in my life where I had gods. I had a trinity of gods. Their name were football, beer, and women. I was worshiping gods, but they weren't the one true God of the Bible. Praise be to him, the one true God. I talk to students on campus, and many of them are bragging. It seems like an increasing thing to me. Many of them are bragging about their experimentation with Hinduism or Buddhism or New Ageness. And it's, it's a noble thing. Listen, I've been to parts of the world taking Bibles and talking to people where Buddhism has its roots and Hinduism is practiced, and these things are not, they're dark, dark things. They're violent religions. And over here, people think that this idea of Buddha is some peaceful religion or some, uh, some cool new age thing. It's not. 
There's one true God. There always has been. There always will be. That sounds noble, but it's not. Maybe you think you've, uh, maybe you think you do, but you've actually made him out to be what you want him to be. Many people say, I, "I can never worship a God like that." When you talk about the God of the Bible, it's because they've made a God up in their mind. Okay, there's a one true God. Do you know Him? Is this the God that you know? Do you know Him? Maybe even more importantly, do you know? Does He know you? Does this God know you? K N O W in an intimate sense. Does He know you? Now. Now that we've established that there's one true God, let's talk about the rest of their definition. That Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are all God, and they're all co-equal and co-eternal. Okay? God the Father first. John 6, 27 says, uses the words God the Father. And 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says there's one God, the Father. I'm not going to belabor this point uh, I think everyone in here, I guess I shouldn't speak for everyone in here, but most people would affirm that God, the Father, is God. Okay? Even the cults, even uh, every major uh, heresy, they've at least acknowledged that God, the Father, is God. Okay? So we're not going to belabor this point, but God, the Father, is God. That's important to note. Two, or B, two B on your sheet. Jesus is God. I want you to go to John 1 with me. John chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. After Genesis, a little bit before Revelation, is the Gospel of John. Okay? It says this. You can laugh. That was funny. It says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, what's it say? God. Now, who is this Word? That's the question, right? It says the Word was God. It says He was in the beginning with God. Do you notice the kind of language that He's using here? Genesis language, in the beginning what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All, came, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that, was, that has come into being. And in Him was life, and the life was in the light of men. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It goes on and on. Let's look at verse 14. What is this Word? Who is this Word? What is this? Is this an impersonal uh, substance or force? What is this? No, verse 14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Who is this Word? Christ. Jesus. God the Son. God the Son is God. Jesus is God. That's what John is establishing here. Okay? Get this, in John eight fifty eight, Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's talking, he's debating with the Pharisees. You don't have to go there, take my word for it, or look it up later if you want. John eight fifty eight, he says this. Uh, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, what's he saying when he says this? What's he getting at? Well, let me give you a little insight. I was in Israel a little while back, and I was at a place called the Wailing Wall, uh, Jewish people don't like when you call that. It's the, it's the closest place that they believe that they can get to the Temple Mount. Okay, It's the closest place they, can, they think they can get to where they believe the Holy of Holies was actually before. And I was talking with a, a young Jewish man. He was about my age, and he was doing the prayers before the Wailing Wall. And I was, I was trying to tell him about Christ and how he was a God and how he'd come to fulfill the prophecies and save our sins and and he struggled with the idea of the Trinity, and I tried to help him understand it a little bit. And he said, but Jesus isn't God. He never even claimed to be God. 
I said, I didn't think he'd be familiar with the scripture. I don't think he was. I said to him, what would, what would happen if I would talk to somebody on the street in Jerusalem here and I said to him, before Abraham was, I am. Just, I was curious. I didn't know. I was curious to know if he would understand that kind of language because this is 2,000 years later and he's a young Jewish man. There's Judaism in Israel and Jerusalem looks mean. There's secular, there's uh, Jews, there's traditional Jews, there's Orthodox Jews, there's different. I didn't know if he'd get this. And you know what he said to me? He said, people would try and kill you. I said, okay, I'm not going to say that. But he said, I don't remember how he said it. But he said, people would try to stone you or people would try and kill you. People would know exactly what you meant. That was the idea. Do you get that? Now we're here in Montana, in Bozeman. We don't necessarily read these words like that, but that's what's going on here. How do I know that? What's the very next verse say? It says they picked up stones to stone him. Why would they do that? Because they believe he's just committed blasphemy. Why? Because he's made himself to be God or equal with God on the same standing as God. God the Son, Jesus is God. I am. Why do you say that? Exodus 3.14, Moses says, Who shall I tell him sent you? Jesus, or excuse me, God says to him, Tell him I am sent you. What's Jesus saying? I am, I am. I am that I am. I am God. Okay. Why'd they end up killing God the Son? Simple. He made himself out to be God. John 20, 28, after Thomas sees the risen Christ, he says this, My Lord and my God, Romans 9, 5 says, Christ is God over all. Titus 2, 13 says, God and Savior, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, that's God the Son. What about God the Spirit? First thing I want you to understand about God the Spirit is that God the Spirit is not an it. It He is a he, okay? Not an it, a he, not an impersonal force. How do I know that? Ephesians 4, 13, Paul warns us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So wind is not grieved, okay? A person is grieved. A spirit is a he. In Acts 7.51, right before Stephen gets stoned, he says this, he talks about him, quit stiffening your neck, quit resisting the Holy Spirit. People, a person, uh, the Holy Spirit is not a people, but he is a person. A person can be resisted, Okay? He can be insulted. Hebrews, not, Hebrews 10, 29 says this. He's insulted. In fact, I believe the ESV translates it outraged. Electricity cannot be outraged. Okay. Uh, wind cannot be outraged. We could personify it or put human characteristics to it and say it would be outraged, but wind cannot. The Holy Spirit can. He's a person. He's... He's a person with feelings. He's insulted in sins and lies and mistruths. Now further, the Holy Spirit is not just a he, but he's God. How do we demonstrate this? In 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, it says this. Now the Spirit, excuse me, now the Lord is Spirit. Why is that significant? Because the Lord is a title, kurios. The kurios is pneuma. The Lord is Spirit. That's a Lord that's ascribed to God. This is a divine title. The Lord is Spirit. Okay? John 14.6. Why don't you go to John 14.6? You're in. You guys in John? Yeah, go to John chapter 14 with me. Now look at verse, not verse 6. I'm sorry. I think I corrected it in your notes. Do I have verse 16 there? 14.16. Is that right? Good. 
Okay, 14.16, it says this. I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. Why is that significant? Okay, because Jesus is using very specific language here. He says, I will give you another Helper. And He very intentionally uses a word here. The word is alas. And it means another. Another of what? Another of the same kind, of the same essence, of the same being. I'll, get, I'll send you, he will send you another helper. Okay, you could have used the word heteros, from which we get our word heterosexual, two different, a different kind. He uses the word alas. I will tell him, I'll ask him, and he will send you another helper, another of the same kind, another of the same essence. Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira, 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 Peter says this, he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? So he says, Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then what does he say after that? He says, You have not lied to men, you have lied to God. It makes the Holy Spirit out to be God. Peter knew, he acknowledged this. He says, You've not lied to men, you've lied to God, the Holy Spirit. Okay? There is one God, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. You see where the the doctrine of the Trinity comes from? There's no proof text for this, guys. There's not a single verse where I'd say, well, here's where it comes from. Does it bother you that the word Trinity is not in the Bible? I forgot to ask you that earlier. We didn't see the word Trinity until uh, a fellow named Tertullian. He was born in... uh, 155 A.D. lived to 220 A.D. Does that bother you? Realize that, that the word Trinity is not in the Bible? There's not a proof verse. I'm not going to say, go to this verse where it says the Trinity of God or the triune nature of God or the, the Holy Trinity of God. But what I'm suggesting, what I'm telling, what I'm trying to show you in Scripture is that if you read Scripture, not as a picture book, Okay, not where you're flipping through it because you're tired, you're afraid that the child beside you is going to get bored. But if you read Scripture, if you study Scripture, if you look for meat in Scripture, the Trinity is undeniable. It's the only reasonable explanation for the things I'm suggesting. I suggest that you're already immersed in the reality of the Trinity before you actually reflect on the idea of the Trinity. I talked about what the Trinity is. Let's touch briefly on what the Trinity is not. Okay, I want to talk about uh, just a few heresies that deal with the Trinity. And some of us may be closer to these things than we imagined. As I begin to study the Trinity this summer and look at these things, I said, boy, I'm glad that I knew these things because I want to avoid these things. Okay, the first is polytheism or tritheism. This comes from an overemphasis on the distinction between the persons of the Trinity. What happens? You end up with three gods. Okay, tritheism. Tritheism, overemphasis on the individuality of the three gods. The Mormons would be a good example of this. They say that Jesus was a man who became God rather than God who became man. A pretty big difference there. Do you understand that? You see the difference? Okay. It sounds a lot like Satan when he said in the garden to Adam and Eve, become like God or become gods, doesn't it? The father of lies from the very beginning was teaching this, that we can become gods. Remember, the Bible makes it very clear that there's one God. Remember all those verses we went through at the beginning? There's one God. So we need to be careful not to dip into tritheism or polytheism where we say there's multiple gods. There's one God. Is that clear? You tracking with me? Right on. Next is this, modalism or Sabellianism. 
This comes from a guy, last name Sabellianism, first name Roger. I don't know what his first name was, but it wasn't Roger if he was 3rd century A.D. But regardless, that's when this was around. Okay, modalism. What does this mean, modalism? It loses the distinction between the persons and claims that God is only one person. In this view, there is three modes of existence in one person. Okay, think this, imagine this. One actor, one tanner, and I exist in three different modes. Okay? I can be Spider-Man. I just changed my mask to Iron Man. Okay? I can be an astronaut. Okay? This is modalism. Modalism says that God is one. But he's one person. Okay? It misses the point that God is Fully God, there's one God, but there's three persons. That's modalism. Or uh, it goes by a number of names. Modalism, like I mentioned, uh, Sibelianism, Jesus only, or oneness movement. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with this? This uh, theory or this doctrine? What about Matthew 3 and Luke 3 when Jesus gets baptized? What happens? Okay, we see all three at once, don't we? Jesus is in the water. He comes out of the water. What happens? God speaks from heaven. He says what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it says the spirit descends in bodily form as a dove. It's one of the places in scripture where we see not three modes of the same person, but three persons, each fully, co-eternally, co-equally God. You with me? Okay, that's important. I'm going to demonstrate why in a little bit. Okay. Uh, where, how is this still practiced? The United Pentecostal Church teaches this. goes by the name Jesus only, and they teach that Jesus pretends to be different people. Okay? Uh, Jesus was God the Father in the Old Testament, then he became bodily form, and Jesus the bodily form, and now he's in Jesus the Spirit. It's important to understand that's not the true Trinity. Last one's Arianism. Okay? Around A.D. 256 to 336, this is held today by Jehovah's Witness, and it denies the full deity of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And they would, they would say that God the Spirit, God the Son were created. That's Arianism. That's Arianism. Okay, some of you are still wondering, uh, why don't we see the word used until Tertullian? And somewhere 155, probably after that. I don't imagine he used it when he was two. Does that bother you? Uh, do you wrestle with that a little bit? Why don't we see this earlier? Why don't we see this in the Bible? Is this just something that man has made up to kind of deal with something that we see? Why is that? Well, Christianity had just been legalized for the first time uh, in the Edict of Milian by Emperor Constantine in 313 AD. Why is that significant? Because before that time, what's happening in the church? Wild, wild persecution. Okay, people are being uh, wrapped in oil and used as torches in the street to light the streets of Rome. People are being fed to the lions in stadiums. They're being crucified in the fields. Wild persecution. The church is just trying to keep its head above water, and it really was doing good. It was spreading. God was making the good news go out, but wild persecution. So it's pretty hard to write systematic or biblical theology when you're doing funerals or when you're, uh, when you're being lit up like torches. Okay. So the gospel was going forth, but it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. where they clarified and articulated real clearly 
this belief in the Trinity, and then in the Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D. Why do I tell you this? Just to help you understand the history of the church a little bit, uh, that this is not a new thing, that this isn't something that men made up just because it happened, because uh, we articulated it at 325 A.D. in the Council of Nicaea. Why didn't they meet and talk about this before? Okay, because if they did, they probably all would have lost their heads. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Talk just briefly about the fault of analogies. How many of you heard analogies about the Trinity? Egg, clover, person, water, different things. Okay, that's how I kind of heard it when I was younger, understanding those ways. I want just alert you to the fact that analogies just don't get there with the Trinity. It just human analogies just don't work. Why? We talk, well, some people talk about the egg, the shell, the yolk, the white. You get it, Trinity. But if you were to take those things all by themselves, would they still be God? No. Same thing with the clover. Okay, some people use the illustration of the clover. There's three leaves on the clover, unless you get really lucky and get a fourth one, which I still have never done. But usually there's three on there. Okay, and you say, well, there's three parts of the clover. But if you were to take those leaves and separate them, each leaf wouldn't be a clover in itself, would it? What is that? It's classic modalism. Do you see now? Do you understand how we do this same thing today? It's modalism. Okay, what about this? Uh, what about water? People say, well, let's use water as a, as a doctrine in the Trinity. It exists in uh, liquid and gas and in solid form, ice, uh, liquid water and steam, right? Again, classic modalism. Okay, it's saying this. It's saying that water puts on this mask and then this mask and then this mask. Water doesn't exist at all three of those things at one point in time, okay? Uh, let's say this. How about, let's use Tanner. He's, he's a father. Uh, I'll be a father in January, I guess, Lord willing. But he's uh, a father, he's a husband, and he's, uh, he's acting as a shepherd at the church. He's also... Uh, college ministry. So what? what's wrong with that? Again, classic modalism, okay? She's just saying that Tanner wears three different masks. So what I'm trying to show you is that these things, uh, these analogies or these illustrations fall short. I messed up though. I told you that clover and egg was modalism. It's actually polytheism or tritheism, okay? Sorry, I mixed that up. Does that make sense to you though? Okay. Now, you have an illustration on your sheet. You guys like diagrams, don't you? Yeah, this isn't perfect, but I hope I think it does help. It's not perfect, but it does help. What does it mean? That the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, neither is the Son the Holy Spirit, nor the Holy Spirit the Father, but the Holy Spirit is God, that the Father is God, that the Son is God. Okay? That the Holy Spirit glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, all the way around. Does that make sense? Can you see that illustration on your sheet? Okay, that's the best probably that we can do. We've used this for a long time. It took me a really long time to get this on your sheet, right? Okay, so hang on to that. But really, illustrations fall short, guys. I know, I get that we would like a concrete, absolute thing. Only we can do that with the Trinity. We've talked about what biblical Trinitarian is and what it is not. I say, why do you talk about the heresies? Why is it important that you address those things? Because the United Pentecostal Church, the Jehovah Witness uh, group, and the Mormon groups are all growing today. Okay? In some sense, they're all flourishing today and spreading today. These aren't old heresies. Guys, these aren't old untruths. Do you, do you see that? Do you understand why it's important to understand these things? 
you understand why it's important to know what's going on in the world around you? There's really nothing new under the sun. Okay, same thing back in AD 325. Same thing now. Same things that that the church has to refute and deal with, and we have to search the scriptures. Do you understand why it's a good, why it's a necessary thing to be a good student of the scriptures? Let me give you another example. I'll give you another, and maybe this will strike home a little bit more with you. The book, The Shack. You read that? Okay, if you haven't, don't, but probably some of you guys have. The Shack is classic modalism, okay? Portrays God the Father as a large black woman named Papa, okay? Jesus is a Middle Eastern carpenter, pretty the typical picture of Jesus, and I can't remember what the Spirit's name is, uh, kind of a wind. Don't tell me if you know it, okay? This is classic modalism, and it's goddess worship. Why is it important that we know and understand these things? Does this sound harsh? Okay, I'm talking about a book that was on the best-selling list, not just in Christian circles, but on Amazon. Thousands and thousands of positive reviews. Popular Christian artists endorsing this book and saying, read this. I've never understood the Trinity until I read this or until I saw this or until I looked at this. This is so insightful. It's such good literature. One famous guy said, this is the Pilgrim's Progress of the 21st century. Do you understand why it's important to know and understand the Trinity? Because things like this come up and they come out. That was in 2008. And just Wednesday, when I was in an airport on Wednesday, flying down to Texas, I saw someone reading or carrying the, it's called the Revisiting the Shack. Okay, these things don't go away. It's, it's so important that we as Christians aren't just feeding on milk, that we understand these things. Not so we can be abrasive or caustic or sharp or unnecessarily rude, but so that we can know the truth. So we can exercise biblical discernment, so we can grow, so we can help, so it can be a benefit to the body of Christ. Okay? Why is it important? There's a new book out called The Zealot. The the person in the times of Jesus of Nazareth, written by a Muslim guy, sweeping again, Amazon. People are saying, great book. Denies the deity of Christ. Why is it important that we know these things? Listen, when I was a new Christian, when I was just starting to read stuff, I was picking up any book I could and just reading it. I was staying up till 2, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning, just reading, Googling stuff on the internet. You have no idea how God protected me. It was good to me. I was just searching. I was just digging. It's important that we exercise discernment in these areas. Again, not so we can be rude or caustic or sharp, but so we can grow, so we can look more like Christ. Okay? I took a survey of the Hebrew Bible class at MSU. I said, if you go into a secular class on survey of the Hebrew Bible and you don't know the Bible, it is very easy for the teacher to misrepresent the Bible and for you to never even know. In some ways, that class was good for me because it made me go back to my room and say, man, Lord, did you really say that? Or is that really how that happened? But so easy for new or old Christians, people who are still on milk, and even some of us are, regardless, it's, it's so easy to get knocked off the rocker on these things, to jump on the new bandwagon and the new train of every new thing. It's so important. I, I've seen too many classmates, guys, too many young adults get wrapped up in fuzzy land and flounder around in their walk after college, get shaky and on a shaky foundation. So whenever someone asks or contradicts the word, they get so flustered that it throws them into a, a tiffy of doubting their faith and 
They, they give no answer for the hope that they possess in Christ Jesus. Peter tells us we must do that. And so that's why I'm exhorting you, especially tonight, study to show yourself approved. Okay, dig into these things. Augustine said this, there nowhere else is a, a mistake more dangerous, the search more laborious, or a discovery more advantageous. Let's go back to the scriptures again. I've got four areas here that this is manifest. I'm not going to cover them all just for sake of time, but it's manifest in creation, Genesis 1.1. What's this say? In the beginning, God. Okay, in the beginning, God. He uses the word Elohim, emphasizing God's power and might. The word Elohim is plural. Why is that important? Well, some people think this is just emphasizing uh, God's majesty or his power and might. That very well could be. Uh, it was typical for Hebrew writers to say things like that, to say waters, to refer to a body of water, but to talk about how big it was. Okay. But the word Elohim is plural. What do we see right after that? And what? The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So from the very beginning, we see this. Let's go to Genesis for a minute. Let's, I, I do want to talk about this briefly. Genesis 1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. The darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. What happens in verse 26 of chapter 1? Then God said, let who? Let us. Let us. Make man in whose image? Our image. Okay, that's one of our theme verses for this series. Let, man, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the sky, and the cattle of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. From the very beginning, we see this doctrine, right in creation. Okay, in Colossians 1.16, it talks about how Christ was there in the beginning, the creator, how God created things through him. Okay, it talks about, man, my Bible's falling apart. Um, it talks about, in Job 26.13 and Psalm 104.30, how the Spirit was there in creation. I don't have to look far. Look at Genesis uh, right in the beginning there. Spirit hovered over the waters. It's manifest in the baptism. If we look at Matthew 3, which we already talked about, or Luke 3, we see all three of them there. Here's something interesting. What is the Great Commission? Who does God, who does Jesus, God and Jesus, uh, Jesus command us to baptize in the name of? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But what does he say? Baptize in the names of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? That's not what he says, is he? He says, baptize in the name. Why does he use that? Singular. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You catch that? Things like this are important to understand about the Trinity. The name, singular, of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? Manifest in the cadence of benedictions. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians 13.4. Love this verse. 2 Corinthians 13, uh, chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, chapter 13, and verse 4. Thirteen fourteen. sorry. I was going, that is not right. And last time I taught, I messed up some verses on your sheet. So I thought I did again. Thirteen fourteen. Paul ends his letter by saying this, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
Paul links these. There's so much more. We just don't have time to go into this, but Paul links them even in the way he writes his epistles. Okay? He'll talk about God sometimes early in his epistle, and he'll talk about Son. He'll talk about Holy Spirit. Also, 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6. Check that out on your own time. Manifest in salvation. Okay, If I was to pick one way, and this is what I was going to major on as I was thinking through this study earlier. We're not going to major on it right now. i got verses there for you to look up on your own. Hebrews 9.14. We are going to talk about that in a minute. So skip over that. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. After Hebrews. And look at verse 2 with me. I like this. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of who? God the Father, by the sanctifying work of who? The Spirit, to obey who? Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Do you see how they're all linked together in this salvific work? Okay, you see how it's one essence, one divine being, and yet three persons, fully God, each of them. I'd, what I'd do, and feel free to do this, practice this as you're writing in your Bible. Okay, Whenever I... Something God the Father, I, distinct with Him, I mark it in blue pen. If it's God the Son, I mark it in, in uh, red pen. If it's God the Spirit, I mark it in yellow pen. Okay? Names, themes, things they've said, things I want to remember that are specific to them. When I see the Trinity expressed in Scripture, what I do is I make a, a triangle that's part blue, part yellow, part red, so I can remember where these things are. It's good to, to practice things like that as you... Uh, go through Scripture. John 14, we won't look at that one. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, 13 and 14. Sometime on your own time, check out Ephesians 1. And remember that Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one thought, or it's one long sentence in the original language. Read through that and check out how Paul expresses the Trinity there. Verses 1 uh, through 6, or especially 3 through 6, deal with the Father's work. Uh, 7 through 12 deal with the Son's work. 13 and 14 talk about the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. But I do want to go over this one. Turn with me to Titus. Titus. Still with me? Amen. Preach it, Tanner. Preach it. I hear none of that. Still with me? Amen. Preach it. Preach it, brother. Titus 3. Okay, let's look at Titus 3. Uh, let's start in verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Who? God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of whom? The Holy Spirit. And then watch what He says. Whom He, God the Father, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs having the hope of eternal life. The Trinity is manifest again and again in salvation. Guys, I I hope as you hear me say things like, uh, let me back up, I I certainly don't want to be proud as I teach. Teach at Tanner, preach at Tanner, preach. I, I say that in a joking manner. May God keep me humble. I just want to be clear with you with that. But do you see how the, the Spirit, the Son, the Father are expressed again and again in the salvific work here? Okay, let's switch gears. Let's close with talking about some application. The first is this. 
Okay, look on your sheet. Application. The first is this. God has no needs. You're not the only object of God's love. Okay, maybe not even the primary object. Perfect love exists in the triune God. God has never been in want. He's never been in need. How do I know this? Verses like this, Acts 17.25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. Why do I want to be humble up here? God make me humble because I have nothing. God is in no need of me. A simple human, a wretch saved by grace. But he delights to use us. He didn't have to make us. He wasn't lonely. Okay, don't let anyone ever tell you that, please. God wasn't lonely, so he decided to, to do creation. Perfect love exists in the Trinity. Okay? If he had not been plural in himself, he would have uh, not been able to be personal and relational until creation. You ever think about that? I love to stretch my mind by trying to think of, uh, trying to stay within the bounds of Scripture, but trying to go back before creation and God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit existing in perfect harmony in all of eternity's past. I think it's John 1.18. Don't quote me on that, but he says, uh, the, no one has seen God at any time, but God uh, the Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him or He has exegeted Him. Think about that. From all of eternity's past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in perfect harmony, in perfect love, in perfect unity. Did they need us? No. You better be sure they didn't. Why then? Why did we get created? Two, God is love. God is love. That love is most perfectly expressed in the triune Godhead. Some of you love this verse. I hope you do. I do too. John, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. I said, no one has any right to say that their God is love. It's for the God of the Bible, the perfect triune God who has love in himself. Do you get that? Do you see that? God didn't need an object to set his love upon outside of himself. Okay, when he created man and women... He said his love is very clear that God has set his love upon us. But he didn't need us to love something. He created us out of overflow, the astounding love that has existed in eternity's past in the Godhead. John 3.35 says, Jesus is speaking, he says, the Father loves me. John 14.31, Jesus speaks again, he says, I love the Father. John 17, 24, check this one out on your own time. Father delights in the son of eternity's past. Wow. Makes it feel pretty small, doesn't it? In some ways it should. God doesn't need us, but he did delight to make us. Can you believe that? God wasn't bored. He didn't run out of things to do. When we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about one of the most, if not the most extreme examples of God's love. Now we think of love as saying nice words or of sex or of gifts or of things. Now love can be expressed through those things. But what is love? God is love. May this bring new life to this verse for you. God is love in himself. He didn't need love outside of himself. Two or three, I should. It's number three on your sheet, right? 
The triune nature of God makes atonement. Yeah, the triune nature of God makes atonement for sin possible. What does this mean? Only God can atone for sin. Okay. Hebrews 9, 14. Why don't we go there? You're in Titus. Back up to Hebrews. So we try and wrap things up here. Back up to Hebrews with me and go to chapter 9. Hebrews 9. Look at verse 14 with me. This blows my mind. How much more will the blood of Christ... Look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling with those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God? Do you see what's going on here? A blue and red and yellow... Triangle. The Trinity is at work in salvation. What does Isaiah 53 say? Yeah, the, prophetic, uh, song, uh, the prophetic chapter in Isaiah, I think it's verse, it's verse 10, it says God, it was God's will to crush him. Some versions say it was God, God was pleased to crush him. Do you see that for the first time in all of eternity's past, God turned his back on the Son and God crushed him as part of atonement? He crushed him as he bore the sin of mankind? Without the Trinity, there's no atonement. Let that sink in. Without the Trinity, there's no atonement. Atonement makes no sense. Okay. Next. Uh, can I see that? I did some editing here. I just want to make sure I'm in line still. Uh, no people, yeah, the next one. No people can rise above their concept of God. No people can rise above their concept of God. You want to be like Christ? I do. I hope you do. You want to be like Christ? Know Him. Understand Him. You want to have perfect unity and harmony with mankind? I do. Study the Trinity. No people can rise above their concept of God. Listen, if your God is small, if He's not the God of the Bible, no people rises above their concept of God. I hope your, your view of God is expanded tonight. Next, it provides an ultimate model for relationship within the body and inside of marriage. What does this mean? Listen, today in the church, here's a buzzword. In, in fact, outside of the church, this is a buzzword, community. I want community. I want to be in a community. I want to be with a community of people. Uh, we don't, we're not going to take time to go there, but marriage in 1 Corinthians eleven three talks about how God is the head of Christ, just as the husband is the head of the wife. You want to know what the number one question I get asked during the week is about counseling? I'm in a relationship, or I want to be in a relationship. What do I do? You want to know more about relationships? Study the Trinity. Look and see and understand, if I can use this word, the hierarchy in the Trinity. It doesn't mean that they're unequal. It doesn't mean that um, I'm more special or better than Brooke. It means that God has created, even with inside the Trinity, He's established an order there. So even as God is the, head of the, uh, is the head of the son, so the husband is the head of the wife. Do you see that? See how this impacts, how this is foundational for so many things? You want to learn about the body of Christ? Look in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, and Ephesians 4. Harmony. Listen, that's why we want you in a community group. Don't just spout air off about community groups. We want you to be existing within a body of people. In harmony, in unity. Lastly, lastly, worship. 
Listen, this must be devotional as we study tonight. If this is pure academia for you, bummer. Make it, change it right now. Make this worship. Make this devotional. A right understanding of the Trinity does this. It creates worship. Though we cannot fully comprehend it, we can work harder to apprehend it. Listen, biblical, historical, orthodox Christianity lives and breathes on the doctrine of the Trinity. This isn't something we can glance over ignobly. Instead, we have to be, it ought to be something that inspires worship while appreciating our limits in revelation and intellect. What am I trying to say there? I, I understand that we're not going to get this tonight. There's oodles of books written on this. What do I hope you walk away with tonight? Some of this application, worship. Man, I hope this expands your view of God. Hope this makes you want to fall at his feet and worship the triune God. I know this stuff isn't easy. I get that. I recognize that. But let's be honest. If you guys looked at your textbooks as much as some of you looked at your Bibles, you wouldn't still be in school. You'd flunk out. Amen? Study, look, read the words of life. You've got to dig to find this stuff. I mean, it's there, but dig, look. These are the words of eternal life. I know the Trinity's hard. I've, I've read probably more this week for this lesson than I have for any other lesson. I get that this isn't easy to wrap our minds around. I'm not asking you to wrap your mind around. What I am asking is to propel you to worship. To those of you who have been coming a while especially, eat meat. Okay, as we wrap up, I want you to, I want you to, be, going, I want you to be growing. It's Andy and I's desire that you would grow in breadth and in depth. Can you imagine, again, if some of you came in tonight running around with a diaper on? No. Okay, same thing with spiritual maturity. Find a way to grow. Get around someone you want to follow as they grow. Go to the Scriptures. Read. Study the Scriptures. Not like a coloring book. Not like you're going through it with a child, but study it as the mind and breath of the Creator of the universe and the author of your salvation. Look, read, take this in, eat it, drink it. You need it. I need it. We need it. My prayers to God is that you would grow in depth and in breadth and that you would teach others these truths. That God would increase your influence in Bozeman to the ends of the earth. That you teach others about the triune God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you that you are beautifully displayed in the Godhead as the triune God. From all of eternity's past, you have existed and do exist in perfect harmony. It causes us to worship you more, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Cross Life. Feel free to share this recording with others, but please do not charge for it or alter the contents in any way. For more recordings or other information about Grace Bible Church, visit gbcmt.org.